0: We started a brand new series in this book last week, and we are uh, making our way through that. And what I want to do today, just kind of to jump right in, we're going to read um, the passage. So if you guys have your Bibles, open up there. If you don't have your Bibles, we do have Bibles in the back, we'd love to give you guys a Bible. We'll also have it up on the screen. Um, so we're going to pick it up today about verse 2. Uh, we uh, began this book, and in short, what makes this a unique book is that it's the story of a prophet, Uh, That's nothing super unique about that, but the prophet and his call was unique in that God called this prophet not to just simply give a message, which was very common for prophets to give messages. Most of those messages are audible or verbal. Uh, In the case of Hosea, his message was both audible and verbal, and uh, it was to be put on display by way of his actions. And the actions that God had called Hosea to do uh, was extremely unique, because in two things that in essence, kind of began to unfold in Hosea's life. One, God had called Hosea to marry a prostitute. Uh, And second thing that Hosea was going to have to endure was having children. Not that that was necessarily in and of itself bad or uh, issue of having to endure. But the fact of the matter is, was that at least two of those children that Hosea was going to have were probably not going to be his own children. They would have been children that uh, his wife, Uh, Gomer was her name, that she would have conceived by way of some of her sexual activity outside of the marriage. And that would have been a very troublesome, challenging, difficult thing for Hosea to lovingly raise these children in spite of her, what the Bible describes as her whoredom. And the reason why God had asked Hosea to, uh, first of all, marry a prostitute and then have children by way of the prostitute was this was God's basic uh, way of displaying a parable. The parable is is to, in essence, demonstrate that God, like Hosea, uh, involved himself in a marriage. And the marriage that God involved himself in was with Israel. Israel, like Gomer, the prostitute, not a great name, but that was her name, uh, like Gomer would have been unfaithful. She would have been like a prostitute. So rather than devoting herself to God, rather than honoring God, serving God, loving God, giving back to God the honor and respect and value that God had demonstrated to Israel, Israel would then take her love and give it to something else or somebody else. Not just once, not twice, but in regular recurrent occasions and circumstances, she would regularly give her love away to somebody other than God. And God says that I want the world to know that this is what my relationship to Israel is like. So this is the story that we're going to begin to read and begin to engage with in the book of Hosea. So we'll pick it up around verse 2. We'll read to the beginning of chapter 2 verse 1. If you guys were here last week, you remember that we only looked at three verses. I told you that we were going to begin to pick up the pace. And today we're going to begin to pick up the pace and look at some all their, uh, other bigger, broader scenarios that are going on throughout the story. So starting at verse 2. Here's what it says. I'll read this, and then I'll pray, and they'll begin to get to work immediately as we uh, finish this. So, verse 2 says this. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take for yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, For the land commits a great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. And she conceived and bore him a son. Verse four then goes on and begin to introduce us to the three children that Hosea is now going to have with this gal by the name of Gomer. Uh, son number one, verse four, says this, and the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel, and I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. Second child, verse six, then she conceived again and bore a daughter and the Lord then said call her name no mercy for I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all but I will have mercy on the house of Judah and I will save them by the Lord their God and I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen child number three in verse eight says when she had weaned no mercy she conceived and bore a son and the Lord uh the Lord said call his name not my people, for you are not my people. I, I am not your God. Yet the number of the children of Israel, verse 10. I should pause real quick. If you have a pen in your hand or a highlighter or something like that, the very first word of verse 10, underline that. It's the word yet. And it signals a radical transformation in the text. Because God just got finished saying, I'm going to show no mercy. She's not my people. I'm going to abandon her. Treat her as if the way that she's treated me, I will abandon her. I will turn my back on her. And yet, verse 10 starts off with this brand new radical, about, almost an, a, really an, an about face, where God says, Yet, the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And the place where it is said to them, You are not my people, it shall be said to them, Children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, For great shall be the day of Jezreel. Verse 1 of chapter 2 then says, Say to the brothers, say to your brothers, you are my people. And to your sisters, you have received mercy. God, we ask you right now that you just help our hearts and our minds to work together. God, that it wouldn't just simply be an exercise in our minds learning facts. But God, that it would be our hearts swelling, opening up, being moved, being changed, softening. If they've grown hardened. Becoming. Humanized. Changed. Transformed. If by sin we become dehumanized and broken. God we pray by your Holy Spirit that you would just. Transform our hearts. Give us life. Holy Spirit breathe. In our midst. In our presence here. The breath of God. Give us life. Change us. God, help us to be able to be a blessing, reflecting our God who's a blessing, God, in everything that we do, everything that we are. And for that, God, we need to be rescued from our sin. We need help. God, we thank you that that's exactly what you provide. So we uh, give you this time right now, and we pray and ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So I'm going to jump right in. And what I want to do is i 'm going to give you basically the outline or things that we 're going to be going to take a look at there's three things for the most part that we 'll just identify and take a look at. The first of which uh, we want to set sort of a historical setting so that 's the first thing we 'll take a look at a little bit of a history. Um, one of the things I've mentioned to you guys over the past several years you 've been around cover so for any length of time. you know that anytime we uh, jump into a brand new book you 've got to first of all kind of ask yourself what type of literature is it? Um, it seems to be an obvious question, but oftentimes one that uh, gets a lot, gets very little attention. What I mean by that is that there are different types of literature, and you read different types of literature differently. In other words, there's different ways by which you approach it. So, for example, uh, when you read the Psalms, it's going to be a little bit different than the way that you approach like a didactic, like, for example, the epistles, uh, 1 Corinthians, Second Corinthians, Galatians, 1 Corinthians, whatever. Um, those types of books oftentimes are more along the lines of instructive or teaching. Um, books like uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those are more narrative. Um, Genesis reads like a narrative. It's like a novel. It reads like a story. It's intended to read like that. Um, And you would study those books very differently than you would, say, study, for example, the book of Proverbs. Proverbs, you know, for the most part, you, you read one proverb. There's not a whole lot of continuity in between each little proverb because you're intended to read a proverb or two. Um, focus on what it's supposed to say, and then you move on to the next one, which has absolutely nothing, perhaps, uh, to do with the one that you just read. And so it's, there's different ways by which you read things. We know that within typical genres of literature, even in the world in which we live in today. So, for example, if you're going to read, um, you know, a Dan Brown novel, all right, uh, or if you're going to read the news, or if you're going to read The Onion, all right, you, you realize uh, that, you, you guys hopefully know what The Onion is, right? All right, you know The Onion is very different. It might read a little bit more like a Dan Brown novel, but uh, a whole lot less like the news. Maybe sometimes like the news. Anyways, but the point of the matter is you realize that there are different approaches that we, uh, te- we have when it comes to different types of genre of literature. And so this particular story is intended to uh, be, it's a historical uh, book. And it demands for us to know certain elements of history around it, which uh, means that we've got to unpack a little bit of that, which we will. So the first thing... Um, In terms of what we'll look at this morning is, first of all, the historical setting. Second, we'll take a look at the promise of judgment. Because part of this, uh, as we read, we read the names of three different uh, children that Hosea had. And uh, they indicate uh, different types of judgment that God will begin to bring upon his people. For the actions, which we'll unpack in a moment. Um, But then finally, everything doesn't end on a, you know, somber judgment note. Because really the chapter ends what we had read in this really high note. Is, uh, in fact, you can almost look at it this way, it ends on gospel, good news. That word uh, in chapter 1 verse 10, which just simply says yet, is indicative of the fact that something's about to change. All is not lost, all is not dark, all is not going to be destroyed, yet God is going to do something, he's going to intervene, he's going to somehow involve himself in a most profound way. And we'll end on that particular message that Hosea ends on. So, first of all, let's jump in and take a look at a little bit of the historical setting that's going on here. So, again, as we already mentioned, Hosea marries a prostitute. I already mentioned to you why Hosea marries a prostitute. But um, the question, again, might be asked why? Well, again, as I already mentioned, is because God wants to put on display a message. The message is. That God is also in a marriage. The marriage that God is also in happens to be an unfaithful marriage. In other words, God's bride is not a faithful bride. God's bride is a very unfaithful bride. She's given herself away, um, in some cases for money, like a prostitute. And in some cases for free. She's just given herself away. It's not because she has sort of this innate desire for money, doesn't get enough money from God, but in that she is in love with another God or other gods. So the issue is not just simply the actions of Israel. The issue is the fact that Israel has fallen in love with somebody else. Have you ever been involved in a relationship where you've that this is your story? And, and in a lot of ways, we live in a world where a lot of the storyline that kind of involves issues of betrayal gets very trivialized. I mean, we can watch movies where someone kind of cheats upon somebody else and all of a sudden, the joke or punchline comes into the scene and it, the scene is made light. But if you've ever been in a situation where there's betrayal, when the person that you love has actually turned stone cold, you know there's absolutely nothing trivial about that experience. It's very painful. It's destructive. Uh, I've mentioned to you before, this is, this is in a lot of ways a story that I grew up in in my family. Uh, this was a story that I watched my dad go through, was... A, father in front of my eyes, who loved my mother, but my mother uh, had given her heart to something else. It was painful for me as a child to watch my father engage in this very painful relationship where he was, for the most part, rejected. All of his attempts, all of his efforts, all of his love, all of his uh, actions of displaying affection were basically shut down. That's very painful. And this is a story that Hosea brings us into, is that this is a story of a God who loves, his heart swells with love. His heart will do anything to, betray, to, to show, put on display, love for his beloved bride. Yet she has loved another and has betrayed not some bad husband, but a good husband. This is a story. So what happens is in a story of this is that Israel is identified as sort of this unfaithful wife. You know, she's forsaken God. She's rejected him. She's turned uh, her back on him. She's been disloyal to him. And this is really the background to the historical uh, reality. But there's two features, I think, that are kind of brought into the storyline that we've got to kind of wrap our minds around a little bit and understand a little bit of the historical context. So next slide, we'll kind of point out, there's two things within the context of history, uh, Israel's history that I think are really important to note. First of all, it's prosperity. Second of which is adversity. So let me give you an example. Uh, Israel, for the time that Hosea wrote, was around the 700s, middle 700s, around 750 B.C. before Christ. Um, And at the beginning of that century, um, Israel was under the leadership of a king by the name of Uzziah. Uh, And at the same time, the other, remember, Israel was divided. So there was a northern kingdom that was called Israel, the capital of which, let's see how good you guys were from last week, paying attention. What's the capital of the northern kingdom that was called Israel? Samaria, you guys are on top of it. All right, Uh, the southern kingdom was called Judah, the capital of which is called? I didn't hear that. Jerusalem. Good job. You guys are so on top of it. All right, so what happened was there was a king by the name of Uzziah, and he led the kingdom of Israel, uh, the south, into great prosperity. Uh, The king to the north also had kind of led the people of Israel into great prosperity. In fact, most scholars would say that Israel had never seen uh, the heights of great, such great prosperity ever since the time in which King David and his son uh, Solomon basically were kings. So, in other words, this, this, was a, this was a very exceptional period in the people of Israel's history. And so, here's the question to kind of ask. When uh, a kingdom is filled with great prosperity, it's being led by good leadership. There's a lot of money. There's a lot of affluence. and At the same time, there's, a whole lot, there's not a whole lot of threat from external um, opposing tribes or armies coming in. Uh, And you got a lot of money. The markets are really good. What do you typically do? There's a tendency oftentimes to have a lot of money, to spend a lot of that money, to buy things, uh, to invest your money, to purchase property, to put room additions to your house, to buy more television sets, to invest in more cars, to invest in more gadgets and all those types of things. But the reality is um, there's a tendency within this um, to become very connected to the affluence that you're experiencing. This is what was happening with regard to the prosperity of the people of Israel. This happened for about 50 years. Towards the end of that 50-year period, which would have been around the middle of the 7th century, so around 750, two things basically happened. There was a king. Um, what had happened was when he had died, uh, the name of this king was Jeroboam II. When Jeroboam II uh, the died, there was a succession of six kings within just about 40-year period of time. Six kings. Four of those kings were murdered. All right, so I want to put this in the context for you. So let's say from 1950 here in America, we had this boom year, all right? Everything was doing great. It was post-World War II. We had a lot of money. We were investing a lot of money. A lot of great things. It was like the golden years of America, all right? It was the Ward Cleaver, June Cleaver era, all right, where mom was at home cooking dinner, making cookies for when Cleaver come, Beaver Cleaver comes home. It's all this golden year, supposedly, of American, you know, Uh, reality Uh, and unfortunately what happens to say you have the succession of uh, presidents that get murdered and not only that there's another looming threat because another looming threat that was going on within the people of israel mid-7th century was there was this uh this military powerhouse this military beast uh to the north called assyria they were like a giant a uh, a bear that was being wakened and stirred from its slumber And they were slowly beginning to move in to creep in. So imagine uh, putting that in the context of America. So let's just say, because we know that Canada is never going to be the threat. So let's just say Mexico. Let's say Mexico, the drug lords in Mexico, completely overthrow any type of governmental system that, or shred of governmental system that actually exists there. And let's just say the drug lords become the chief kingpins over all Mexico. So much so that Border Patrol in America, just they have completely lost or been completely bought out by uh, the drug kingpins from uh, from Mexico moving northward. So let's say everybody living along border towns in Mexico or Southern California or Arizona or wherever else are now in danger of constant under threat of these drug lords coming in, people coming in, trafficking drugs. And if you are anywhere around there, you, your family, your land, everything you possess, everything you have is now under great threat. Your money's in danger of being taken. Your house that you just built is in danger of being destroyed. Your daughter that you just had is in danger of being kidnapped and then thrown into sex trafficking. Your wife is in danger of being raped. Now, all of that affluence and money that you once had has gone out the window. Now you are absolutely governed by fear. You hoard, you protect, you guard. In other words, you are in the moment of adversity. So here's my question. This was Israel. They went from affluence. They went from incredible prosperity to incredible adversity. So here's the question. If Israel is God's wife, what does it look like to be faithful, to be a faithful wife in the middle of adversity and in the middle of prosperity? Does that make sense? Let me bring it home. Let's say, let's say if you are married, what does it look like for you as a husband or a wife to be faithful to your spouse in the midst of adversity, in the midst of prosperity. Well, in prosperity, what it probably would look like is you celebrate together. You are thankful. You thank God together because the fact your husband's got a good job or you got a good job. If you're a woman, the fact that you were able to build out a house, you're thankful to God because he gave that to you. You are able to use your money that you have to be generous and give away to the people that maybe don't have much or contribute to the church or give your energy and your time away to serving the poor. Uh, You recognize that in moments of prosperity. There's a tendency for you to just you should, if in fidelity, turn to your spouse and say, thank you. I'm so happy that you're my spouse and you provide. And we have so much to celebrate together because we have each other. So here's another question. What should a faithful marriage look like in the midst of adversity? In other words, you don't have money. You have to eat, God forbid, Carl's Jr. Mac and cheese or hungry man, you know, or... Horrible food, like you can't even provide to buy shoes. And all these things that you once had grown accustomed to and having at the kind of their fingertips, now you don't have any of those things. You have to live in a shack because you had to move out of your house. You couldn't afford it. You had to get rid of your business acquisitions. You had to get rid of all of this other security that you had held on, hold on to. Now you are literally, you haven't bought a pair of shoes in two years. What does fidelity look like in a marriage where there's adversity? It should look like a wife saying, we're going to get through this. It's hard. It's painful. But you know what we have? We don't have money. We don't have food. We don't have a nice house, but we do have each other. I'm going to trust you. And we're going to make it through this. So here's the question. What did Israel do? What did they do? So here's the thing. Next Next slide. What Israel did in the midst of their... Prosperity in their adversities. In their prosperity, Israel forgot God and ultimately ended up praising themselves. So take a look at Hosea chapter 2, verse 8. Here's what it says. It says, and she did not know that it was I who gave her grain, wine, oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, all of which she gave to Baal. Baal was a false god. And what God's saying is that I I gave her everything. I gave her grain, clothing on her back. I gave her riches. I gave her every single thing she had. And what she did is she then goes and gives that away, lavishes that upon some other God. And in the meanwhile, basically Israel in her prosperity is basically walking around flaunting with a swagger saying, look what we've done. Aren't we awesome? In their adversity? Israel basically turned their back on God and says, God, why? What is your problem? Do you hate us? Why are you doing this? We despise you. If you're a God that's going to treat us this way, if you're a God that's not going to let us have every single thing that we want, anytime we want, when we want, then we're going to turn our backs on you. And here's the thing. That's not too far dissimilar than how we oftentimes act, is it? In our prosperity, we as human beings... We have this tendency to kind of walk with a little bit of a swagger. We forget the fact of days of adversity or challenges, and we have a tendency to kind of think that we did this. We were responsible for our greatness because of our mind, our thinking, our ability, our suave nature our character that somehow is able to bring about our success. And We forget God. And we have our hearts wander, and we give it away to all sorts of other false gods, false deities, We praise and honor and worship and reflect upon all these other things. And in our adversity, we blame God. What's your problem, God? I thought you made us. I hate you. Why would you do this? And we say things that maybe some of us don't even mean, but we say things because at the end of the day, we're looking for somebody to blame. And this is exactly what God said about Israel is that you were unfaithful to me. I was a good husband to you. Let me say one other thing. I mentioned this last week. That for a husband like God to marry Israel who had nothing. So if you can picture this in your mind, like God came to Israel when Israel was just a nation. So the picture, the image that oftentimes arises in the Old Testament is that Israel was like this young, not very attractive woman that had been dressed in broken down close She was very poor so think of it as kind of like the uh, the rags to riches story it is the ultimate rags to riches story so here's israel not very attractive not very desirable uh not very you know good smelling and not very attractive in any way shape or form and god comes to israel in her brokenness tatteredness rags and god says i want you and what we mentioned last week was that any time that type of scenario happens, that that person who is being brought into that marriage who is nothing but a liability has all of their liabilities assumed by the one that has nothing but benefits and blessings. And all those benefits and blessings that are within the possession of that great king then become possessions of that one that was nothing but a liability. There's this unbelievable exchange. And this is what God says, I do with Israel. I gave you everything. Everything that you now have is a direct result of my love for you. In adversity, in adversity, you forgot me. Or in adversity, you turned your back on me. In prosperity, you forgot me. In both circumstances, you betrayed me. And God says, what should I do to one that I love? And I've sought after. And I've given myself in my entirety to. Who's done nothing but betray. Over and over and over again. In both adversity and. Prosperity. And this is where God begins to unpack. What he'll do. And now. This comes out by way of. The story. With regard to. Different children. That Jose is going to have. So. If you can think of it this way, the names of the children are very significant. The names of the children that Hosea is about to have are very important. In fact, think of it, think of it this way. The names in and of themselves are like a sermon, right? So this kind of leads us on into the second thing, which is the promise of judgment. So before I jump in and begin to unpack the names of these things and sort of even the thought of judgment, I want to unpack something real quick because oftentimes we tend to think about, well, you know, why would God begin to talk about judgment? What? That's not very nice of God. Why would God render some sort of a judgment or render some sort of a verdict over his people uh i thought god was god i thought God was all forgiving god would do all these things before you you know jump to that conclusion and begin to judge god you got to listen to the rest of the story and i urge you before you formulate your opinion about god just listen to the rest of the story but just pause and hold on to that right now and just consider this for a second if you knew somebody that was in a relationship let's say they were they got married And on that wedding day, it was an amazing wedding day. It was beautiful. It was one of those things where you drop, you know, $40,000, $50,000 at this spectacular wedding, a really good photographer, really good videographer. And it's just an absolute beautiful day. But within the first six months, let's just say um, the wife then becomes unfaithful. Some of you might be thinking, why am I picking on the woman? Well, it's part of the storyline. So I'm trying to make an analogous type of a situation here. So it could have just well been the guy, but let's just keep it analogous within the story. So let's just say the woman goes out within the first six months, is absolutely completely unfaithful to the husband. And on that, within her infidelity, the husband lovingly uh, comes to her and says, why are you doing this? You shouldn't do this. Do you remember all the things that I've done for you, how much love I've had for you, what I've lavished upon you? Why would you continue to be unfaithful to me? And she basically turns her back on him and does not an about face and walks away from him with a hardened heart and basically says, I'm going to continue on this path. And let's just say this is somebody that you know in this particular relationship. And they come to you, and you begin to try to they, you, you counsel them. And then in the conversation, you begin to find out that this woman also, let's just say, is you know, physically abusive. You know, it does happen. I get it. But the point of the matter is, let's say she kind of starts whacking the guy with a, her shoe or hitting with a broom. And she's, like, physically abusive to the guy or threatens him with a gun. I don't know. Um, at some point, you would come into that relationship, and if you cared about one of those people within that party, you would encourage them. Get a divorce. you got to leave. This is dangerous for you. You're going to get hurt. Again, this can be reversed as well within uh, the male being the abuser as well. And oftentimes that is the situation. But you would be well within the realm of just plausible arguments to go to that person and say, you really should leave. For your safety, for your own life, for your own thriving and flourishing. This is killing you. This relationship is destroying you. It's perfectly just for you to send a divorce papers to them and leave that is rendering a verdict or a judgment it's a judgment again we often immediately go to judgment like where god's gonna crush and there are times that god does that but sometimes the judgment can just simply be it's a verdict it's what happens if you go that route if you go this path if you make these choices these are the things that are going to happen so these are the types of scenarios that are actually unfolding before our eyes so Let's begin to take a look at each of the children that Hosea has. The first of which is a child by the name of Jezreel. Uh, It says this in verse 4. It says, And the Lord then said, Call his name Jezreel. For in a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So the name Jezreel literally means he sows. He sows. And it basically can mean that God sows or the people of Israel have sown in their actions in horrible decisions that they made. In other words, evil decisions that they sowed will actually reap a bad crop. In this case, God says, you sowed evil decisions. I will sow judgment. And so what is going on here is that as the story of Jezreel begins to unpack, God basically makes reference to a guy um, by the name of Jehu. Now, again, I realize most of us may not be familiar with who Jehu is and so on. I'm just going to give you a really brief little background of this. But basically what happened was, this was generations earlier. And the children of Israel, like I said, had divided kingdoms, north and the south. And there was a really, really bad king. Some of you guys might be familiar with his name, especially if not his name, you'll be familiar with his wife's name. Uh, his name was Ahab. He had a wife by the name of Jezebel. And Jezebel was this evil, wicked, evil, wicked lady. She reminds me of what I would expect Cruella to develop. To be, right? Remember Cruella, Deville, right? No? Anybody? Sorry. Um, 101 Dalton Nations. Anyways, the point of the matter is, she's just this evil, wicked lady. Nobody likes her. Every time she comes on the scene, it's just like bad music gets played in the background. Evil lady. And so this guy, Jehu, is trying to establish a new kingdom, a new monarchy. And so he comes in and basically through some wheeling and dealing, uh, someone makes a deal, says, you know, you have this opportunity to kind of get the throne, but here's what you'll need to do. You'll need to basically kill all of the sons of Ahab, which would have also been the sons of Jezebel. And so what happens is this guy, Jehu, goes out and slaughters uh, dozens of the sons of Ahab, actually decapitates them, brings the heads of these sons of Ahab, lays them in the, in the valley of Jezreel. All right, so this is, this is all happening in the valley of Jezreel. And God says, hey, you remember the whole issue of Jezreel? i haven't forgotten that that was bloody it was murderous it was horrible it was despicable it's not the way i operate it doesn't reflect me it doesn't value life i haven't forgotten that you've never repented from that you've never turned from that and i haven't forgotten that it would be like uh, let's just say let's just say if you were a prophet in america and let's say you were in jose's sandals didn't have shoes on sandals um and you were called by God to go out and marry a prophet, all right? And then you, in the marriage of this prophet, God says, I want you to have children. And I want you to name three of your children. The names that I want you to name your children. The first child I want you to name is Hiroshima. Second child, I want you to name uh, Guantanamo Bay. Third child, I want you to name Roe v. Wade. Because there were activities done in these locations, at these landmark decisions that I hate. That were despicable to me. That do not reflect my heart. Do not honor me. Do not bring about human thriving. Actually undo and destroy and fray human thriving. God, through... Hosea's children is sending a message. And the point that God is saying to his people through this issue of Jezreel, is, he says, is that you guys have sown wickedness. Now I'm going to sow judgment. Second thing, God then names the second child, or Hosea has a name given for a second child by way of God. Um, He used to call his name No Mercy. Lo, Ruhamah in the Hebrew, and in verse 6 it says this, She conceived and bore again a daughter. And the Lord then said, call her name, No Mercy, for I will have no mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them, but I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God, and I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. So again, what we see here is sort of this uh, this correlation between Israel and Judah. And in this particular case, Israel, again to the north, uh, Israel has had a long succession of kings that are wicked and evil and have made bad decisions and have led the people of Israel down a path that's not the path of flourishing and life and goodness and godliness and the south has had a little bit of better uh you know activities and choices by way of their kings but god says i'm gonna i'm gonna save and help judah the north israel is going to fall into great tragedy and so god says i'm not gonna have any mercy on them i'm gonna withhold mercy third child is in verse nine then god says of him um It says, in, in verse 8, will pick it up there. It says, and when he had weaned no mercy, or when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord then said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I'm not your God. And so what God is saying here is that this third child is not my people. And perhaps this can have a double meaning. The first meaning, perhaps, is that as my people, Israel, you guys aren't acting like my people. You're my you're my wife. I betrothed you to myself. I called you to myself. I've been nothing but a generous and a good God. I've blessed you. I've taken all of your liabilities in exchange for all of my assets. Uh, there's been this unbelievable exchange, and everything you've ever needed, I've always provided for you. Any type of defense you've ever needed, I've always been there to be a protector and a shield over you. Instead of you guys going deeper into me in your moments of adversity and celebrating me in your moments of prosperity, you have done nothing but betray me and turn for me. And all of the goods and all the benefits and all of the assets I've ever given you, you have then taken those things out and you've squandered them on all your worship of all these other false gods. And God says, you're not acting like my people. So that's the first thing. The second thing, perhaps, could just simply be the fact that God is saying, you're not going to be my people. I will abandon you. I will divorce you. That's the idea. That's basically being conveyed there. Now, that leads us to the final thing i am done. Because all of this can come across as very heavy and, in a sense, weighty because we hear it and we're just like, oh, it's just, this, is not, this is not good news. It's bad news. You're right. It's totally bad news. It's horrible news. But again, the reality is we live in this world, don't we, where people are betrayed. We live in that narrative. And if you've ever been in that narrative in that storyline, let's say if you are ever married or you've ever had a boyfriend or girlfriend or a relationship that has gone south because of betrayal, You know what those emotions stir up in your heart? They're horrible. They're dark. They're destructive. They have a tendency to unravel you. That's what they do. Those emotions have the ability to literally render you useless as a human being. You don't thrive as a human being when you find yourself betrayed over and over and over again. You don't thrive when you have a relationship. And it's constantly going south, whether by way of physical abuse, sexual abuse, betrayal, turning their back on you, someone revealing secrets about you, maybe that you only told that person by way of confidence. God is saying that this is the description of the relationship that I've been in with Israel. What am I to do? So before you judge God, which is what we're all prone to do, with why would God even consider cutting them off? Put yourself in the story. What would you do? What would your response be if you had a spouse that you've given your heart to, you've given your life to? You would do anything for that person. And in the course of that relationship, somehow one of the most darkest betrayals have befallen that relationship and is now tainted and stained and ruined that whole thing. And so rather than flourishing, it's nothing but destroyed and unraveling. And God says, this is where I'm at. This is my relationship with Israel. And to even spread it further, this is God's relationship with all humanity that he called and created to reflect and image him. So what should God do with these people whom he created and lavished life into their souls and given them everything that we have, and yet nothing but betrayal is what he has given to God in return? Surprisingly, what God does is he offers a promise in verse 9 or verse 10. It says this, yet the number of the people of Israel or children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, shall be called, you are my children, the children of the living God. And so what God does is he actually says, starts out this sentence with his words. He says, yet, this is one of the most absolutely most hopeful words in the whole story here. Because God is basically saying, look, this is what my people deserve. They've not been faithful. They have not honored me. They've not loved me. They've not committed themselves to me the way they ought to. And as a result of that, it's brought pain and hurt and destruction, fraying. And what God is saying is that, yet, I'm not going to do to the people what I should do. But in reality, is being communicated here. And this has always baffled uh, Hebrew scholars because in their minds, they understand what the Torah says. And the Torah describes that when God's people or within the relationship of God's people, when there's a husband and wife relationship and one of the spouses was unfaithful, meaning there was any type of marital infidelity, that the law basically required to take that person out and have them stoned. It's kind of the Old Testament way of, of killing someone. It was very dehumanizing. It broke them down. It also sent a very large message. And some of us might look at that and critique it. You know, but the reality is that's what it was. And through that was his message that God was basically saying is that when there is a breach of covenant, breach of relationship, and a broken heart ensues, somebody's got to pay. Somebody's got to pick up that bill. Somebody's got to carry that. Somebody's got to go into exile. Somebody has to bear the weight of that pain. And God's saying, at the end of the day, I'm not going to be the one to make Israel carry that weight or carry that cost. Instead, God says, I'm going to keep Israel where they are, and they will flourish as the sands of the seashore. And all of these things are tapping in sort of this unbroken storyline all the way back in the book of Genesis where God says to Abraham, makes his promise, I'm going to make you this nation. This nation is going to be vast and great. And generation upon generation will fill the earth. And God's saying is that, you know, I'm not going to ever break my covenant with the people of Israel. But at the end of the day, somebody's got to carry the weight of this pain. Someone's got to carry the shame. Someone's got to go into exile for those that deserve to go into exile. And so what God ultimately is setting the stage for is something that was about to happen 750 years later. When God would enter the story he wrote. The author enters the very narrative that he's telling. Not to bring judgment, but to bear judgment. This is the absolute amazing news of Jesus as he comes. And he basically says, I've come here not to crush my enemies, but instead to be crushed for my enemies. Israel deserves exile. Israel deserves Judgment, Israel deserves the oppression that they have brought upon themselves. But instead, Jesus' story from the prophet Isaiah is that I will be the one to be oppressed, crushed, thrown in exile. So that those who deserve exile, crushing, fraying, brokenness, can actually be given life and put back together again. And do you hear what God says at the end of the chapter? He says, those who are not my people will, in fact, be my people. Those who deserve no mercy will be lavished mercy upon them. And the question is how? Because one stood in the place and cried, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And rather than an answer, for the first time throughout all creation, throughout all History throughout all his story, the father didn't answer the son. Instead, there was silence. You know what that silence was? Abandonment, divorce, cutting off, no mercy. So that we who trust this story can be lavished upon with mercy, so that we who are not his people can be called his people. The most beautiful element about this is that if you believe that, if you let that story change your heart, if you trust it, if it allow that reality to become something to change you, you'll become a different person. Because rather than viewing God as this very disturbed, and angry, and not very happy landlord that's just looking for any opportunity to sort of evict you and kick you out of existence. You actually have a new definition flooding in your mind that Jesus says, you know what God's like? He's like a father. And we're like wayward sons and daughters. And this father will gladly Run out into the field, throwing any form of respect and dignity to the wind because fathers in that day ran for nobody or nothing. Undignified. Fathers wouldn't run. Fathers were the pillar of dignity and respect. So to see a father running as if somehow he's hurried or he's all giddy is not the image that fathers wanted to have. So Jesus in the story of the two prodigal sons paints the picture of this prodigal father who casts his own dignity to the wind and says, I want to run to my sons, but especially those who have betrayed and run and squandered everything I've given to them. So the God that you see is really a father who loves you, who has done everything within his power to rescue, to redeem to go into exile for you. To pick up the cost on your behalf. To pay your tab. Because. Motivated. Fueled by his love. For you. That should do something in our hearts. Look. Remember back in sixth grade. When you found out. Maybe it wasn't you. Maybe it never happened to you. It was, that was your story. It was kind of like my story. Like You know, you always want someone like, to come up to you and whisper. Like, hey do you know that? Cute little girl over there. She likes you. That never happened to me. All right? Um, but maybe if that was you and that, that, that sensor, you're like, oh my gosh, someone likes me. It's not just like me, but they like, like me like that's That's awesome. I want to get to know who this person is because they like you. They want to be with you. They want to know you to some degree, even though a very minor degree, this is a story of God that God doesn't just like you. He loves you. His sin, your sin, sorry, your sin, he doesn't have sin, your sin, he despises. But he despises it like a cancer that's killing you. This is why God hates sin. This is why God hates our rebellion. It's because he sees that our rebellion and our whoredom and our wandering hearts and our prostituting of ourselves away actually takes us away from life from light, and from love, and moves us further into darkness and alienation. And what God has done is he's done something about the sin in order to create the way whereby he doesn't have to cancel out and crush both sin and sinner, but that he can deal with the sin while preserve the sinner. And not keep them in the phase of sinnerness, but change them to become sons and daughters. This is what he's done for you. If you trust that, if you believe that, that will change your view of this God. This is why Paul can say, do you know that our God is not against you? He's not to crush you. He's not looking for angles to slaughter you or to give you cancer and make you suffer and to ruin your life. It's not what our God is doing. He's not looking for angles to somehow Go back into the history books and say, look what you did right here. Remember these things back in like fourth grade? I'm angry at those things. I'm going to crush you for those things. God says, no, no, everything that you've ever done was laid upon my son at the cross. He bore that for you. And now that's why Paul can say, do you know that our God, he's actually for you? He's for you. He loves you. He's like a father. He wants to embrace you. He wants to change you. He wants to take those elements of insecurities. He wants to take those elements whereby you're trying so hard to be approved by other people and satisfy those things in himself. And when those things begin to be satisfied in him, you'll find that you will become a different person. You will now have the ability to love other people. You will have the ability to forgive. And this is what the gospel is all about. This is what... Being a Christian is all about living the Christian life as we describe it. It's just simply putting on display those themes and the storyline and the narrative of the gospel in our lives. So, when we forgive other people, that's just a little snapshot in the big forgiveness that God did with me. When we love the marginalized, the unlovely, we're just basically putting on display a little snapshot, a little preview, a little storyline of the bigger storyline of what God has done by loving the unlovely. That's what being a Christian is. And ultimately, one of these days, God will redeem, bring about transformation those, and bring us into that place where he's there. Whatever that is, heaven, paradise, whatever you call it, however it gets brought up in the scripture to celebrate what God has done, to see the people that God has brought in part of this global family. I encourage you, as we finish and close and we sing and respond, to respond to this God. Because look, at the end of the day, this God that's so great that has sought after you and I, just like God sought after Israel, in spite of our waywardness or the way that Hosea describes it, the whoredom of Israel as well as the whoredom of ourselves, that Jesus himself took all of that upon himself and was crushed for us in our place. So that we who feel the weight and the crushing weight of all of the pain and sin and soiling that we find within this life can actually be cleansed and washed and rather than defiled, made clean. And rather than alienated, loved. We're going to respond. We have communion in the back and encourage you, partake of that. Eat the bread, drink the cup, as a way of reminding yourself of the fact that Jesus was crushed for you. can do that as as a small group of the worship team. Come on up. Yeah, come on, guys. Uh, You can do that as a small group, as a community group. If you're here by yourself, maybe if you want to find someone else, do it with them. That's fine. If you're here and you got a little group, invite people into that group. That's what the celebration of the community is all about. It's remembering, recognizing what Jesus has done to bring about a family of people. Maybe we don't even know. That's fine. You just bring them in. That's what the community is all about. So I want to pray. If you're here this morning and there are scenarios in your life that you need prayer for, there's sin that you need to repent from, turn from before God, this is an opportunity to just be able to do that. We're going to have people up all over off by the side, by the cross, that we want to pray for you. Whatever types of circumstances you find going on in your life, whatever types of areas you may find yourself and you feel as if you're sort of in exile in, maybe it's sin that you've been crushed by. Maybe it's disease or sickness that you might find even in your own body and you feel the crushing weight of that and you feel plagued by that. We believe that God sometimes likes to heal. We like to pray for that. I mean, Jesus Jesus did all the time. We believe that God still may want to do that and sometimes often does. We're going to believe him. He's a big God. So if you've got circumstances like that in your life, we want to pray for you for those things. So let me pray right now. Why don't we all stand? Let's just celebrate. Let's give our praise and our worship and our adoration to God, let's withhold nothing back. Because look, at the end of the day, as a church, we love to just respond to God. That's what this is all about. It's responding to God for what God has done for us. We don't respond to Him and somehow earn His affection. We respond to Him because we have His affection. He loves us. He's demonstrated His love for us through Christ's death. Our songs, our raising our hands to God is like like a child raising our hands to a dad saying, Dad, you are my father. Sometimes even raising our hands in a way of expressing, God, you are great, and profoundly powerful. Let your power, God, go way beyond this simple little room on into San Luis Obispo, on the central coast, beyond the central coast. God, let your glory come in a profound way on this earth as it is in heaven. That's why we raise our hands and sing and stand and get on our knees as a way of saying, God, you are God, I'm not. And I humble myself before you. So God, thank you that you're here. Thank you that we don't have to somehow create an emotional environment whereby you come. You're already here. You're already here. So we just want now to respond to that, to you your presence, affectionately in love, confessing sin, and God even bringing healing to broken hearts, healing to broken bodies, healing to wounded minds.